0: Morning in Jesus name. Amen. This may be a strange way to start our studying God's word this morning, but here goes. Knock knock. Jesus. Exactly. Jesus who? Jesus who? Turn, if you would, to Revelation 3, verse 20. We discover there in Revelation 3, verse 20, many of you are already there, but we discover there a very well known verse to many of you. I'm sure you've heard it many times in the past. Maybe you've even shared this verse with others. It's a wonderful verse. It really is. And we're going to see why that is this morning. But it's also a verse, one of the, probably the top 10 that are routinely removed from their original context. They're taken out of their context and kind of used willy-nilly by others. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. So first, listen as I read Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. These are the words of Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Let me read it one more time. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. As I mentioned Many of you are, are, are familiar with that verse, aren't you? You know that verse. And you may recognize it because it's been used in evangelistic messages and tracts and books for many years. Most famously, at least in, in terms of, of what I'm aware of, most famously in the Four Spiritual Laws, a little book, booklet that was published, first published by Bill Bright back in 1952. But when we consider this verse in its original context, right, the verses around this one verse, uh, the, the book that it's in, the part of the book that it's in, when we consider that context, we quickly realize this invitation was actually directed at those inside, not outside of the church. As we've been reading through the opening chapters of Revelation as part of our Bible reading plan, you may have noticed or you may have been reminded of the fact, if you already knew this, that this much-discussed book, this often misunderstood book, was not written to a group of future Christians pouring over prophecy charts and news headlines in the midst of some new world order. No, like the rest of the New Testament, this book was actually written to seven real churches. Churches just like this one. Seven actual churches. Churches that were clustered near the western coast of what is today the country of Turkey. So that's the east side of the Aegean Sea. That's where these churches existed. Why is that important to know? Well, it's important to know for the very same reason that it's helpful. It's important to know for any New Testament book. One of the things we have to learn about Revelation is stop treating the book so differently. Stop making it something that it's not. It's a book of the Bible. And we bring the same exact tools to this book that we bring to other books now yes there are some distinctions about this book but we start with our fundamentals of just asking questions like who wrote this book who to whom was it written and when we turn to revelation we understand we know that the identity of the original audience for this book and any book is extremely helpful knowing that is helpful because what does it do it helps us understand why the author wrote to that those people if I knew that you wrote a letter and I knew that the audience, what, that, 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 you, that I found out that the, the recipient of that letter was your own child or maybe your spouse, that would be far different than if I found out that it was to the Department of the Internal Revenue Service, right? <laughs> or you were writing to the West Valley View newspaper. If I knew the recipient, it I would read differently what I was seeing there. Right, So, if I took something that you wrote to the IRS and I said, and you said, "Oh, this is a, a letter I wrote to my beautiful and beloved spouse," and I read it, and I thought, "This is not. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. Why are you talking to her about these things?" So it's just basic it's the way we communicate the way, the way we understand uh, anything that we read. what's wonderful about the revelation is that in the opening chapters of the book, we find not one but we find seven mini letters to these seven churches. These little epistles are right here in chapters 2 and 3. So when we study these letters, when you dig in and, and really understand what's happening in these churches by means of these letters, we realize that this Revelation, capital R, this Revelation, this whole book, really is, first of all, The revelation they needed. It was a book written for these seven churches. It was the revelation they needed. And when you really embrace that and accept that, it helps us to be grounded in making sense of the rest of the book. Again, as is the case with any book of the Bible, when you're confused about to whom this book was written, about the original audience, about the believers for whom this was written, then it's very easy to become confused ...about what the book actually means. Now we'll spend more time in the coming weeks... ...talking about a solid approach... ...a a sound approach to this very strange... ...but very wonderful book we call Revelation. But this morning we're going to look deeper here... ...and we're going to think in terms of the context here... ...of the verse that I read to you earlier. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. So let me mention two big things to keep in mind about the context... First of all, these letters are being transcribed by the Apostle John, but they are, in fact, the words of Jesus himself. Hear them as the words of Jesus. There are very few places outside of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four books that are chronicles of Jesus' life, earthly ministry. There are very few places outside of those books that we find the actual words of Jesus. You could probably think of some right now. Uh, One of the most famous is is Jesus confronting Saul on the Damascus Road. There we hear Jesus speaking, right? But Revelation, and and that's the most probably famous example of these, what we might call red letter (laughs) occurrences that take place and we find them in the Bible. But Revelation chapters 2 and 3, including chapter 1, these are certainly the most expensive extensive of the words of Jesus outside of the Gospels. It's also important to note the context from which Jesus speaks to these seven churches. What do we know about him speaking to these churches? Well, chapter 1 actually reveals this to us. Chapter 1, in fact, introduces us to the language of the book. Not in every place, but the dominant language of the book. And that dominant language, yes, it was written in Greek originally, but beyond that, the dominant language of this book is a symbolic and visionary language. And when you understand that, again, it helps you to stay grounded in the book. The symbolic and visionary language of this book. And chapter one, what does it do? It depicts Jesus with this kind of language. He's got flaming eyes, he's got bronze feet. He's a Jesus who's walking, strangely, in the middle of seven golden lampstands. What in the world is John seeing here in this vision? Well, it's explained for us in chapter 1. We actually get an answer key provided in chapter 1. Again, which helps us with the rest of the book. What does it mean? What's the answer key say? It says that Jesus Christ is present with and overseeing his churches. Get the golden lampstands that he's walking in the middle of are his churches. And he's there present with them, cares for them. He's there in the midst with them. These churches specifically, because there are seven of them, seven churches of Western Asia Minor. Now that's one thing to know about the context. Jesus is speaking here, Revelation 3.20, chapters 2 and 3. Jesus is speaking. A second thing to keep in mind, our key verse this morning comes from the final letter included in chapters 2 and 3. This is it. Of the seven, this is number seven. The church that's addressed in chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, that church was located in a city called Laodicea. Laodicea. And along with two other cities, the city of Colossae and the city of Hierapolis, this Laodicea was situated in the Lycus River Valley. still there today. You can see the ruins of these cities. Of the seven churches addressed in the Revelation, it is the southernmost city, it is the easternmost city. What's interesting about all of these little mini epistles, these little letters, and you've probably noticed this, is how each follows the same pattern. Did you see that as you were reading? They all follow the same pattern. Each of these seven short letters begins with a description of Jesus followed by a diagnosis of the believers there, the ones being addressed, followed by a directive to action. After this, there is a danger to consider, and finally, a declaration of reward for those who conquer or overcome. All of the letters, all seven of these letters in chapters 2 and 3 follow that same pattern. Description, diagnosis, directive, Danger declaration you'll find that same thing. We see it here as well. So knowing all of this we need to ask What does the entirety of this mini letter verses 14 through 22? What is this message for the Christians in Laodicea this 2,000 year old message? What does it reveal to us that can help us make sense of Christ's words in chapter 3 verse 20? His invitation there in chapter 3, verse 20. I'm not going to read straight through the whole letter, but let me point out for you some of the key revelations, little r, in the Revelation, capital R, about this final church address. And maybe revelations about us as well. Let's stay in that posture, brothers and sisters. Let's stay ready for God to speak to us about our hearts, about our church. Amen? So we learn here, first of all, take a look on the screen. Number one. Number one. Here he comes. Number one, this church had become spiritually useless. Hard words, but true. This church had become spiritually worthless. In the short letters that comprise chapters 2 and 3, the works of a church. I know your works, Jesus says. These works of a church were an important way to gauge the spiritual health of the church. Is this church healthy? Is it unhealthy? Well, the works were often that, that window into the health of the church, that gauge, that barometer. In verse 15, Jesus compares their works in Laodicea to what? lukewarm water, lukewarm water. Okay, wait a minute. What exactly is Jesus saying here? Well, it's helpful to know this about the Lycus River Valley. It's helpful to know that when, if you know that the neighboring city of Colossae was famous for its refreshingly cold water, it was water that flowed down from the snow, from the ice, from the rain on Mount Cadmus. It's also helpful to know that to the north, Hierapolis was known for its healing hot springs that that fed large baths, baths that were famous all over Asia Minor and even abroad in the Roman world. But unlike its neighbors, this city, Laodicea, received its water via aqueducts. And by the time that water reached the city, it was you guessed it, lukewarm. It was lukewarm. Combine this with its well-documented hardness, (laughs) and we're talking about some pretty awful tap water (laughs) in Laodicea. That was the reality. So what's Jesus saying? He's telling these believers that they've they've become just like the water that they drink. You are neither refreshing nor healing. Your temperature is tepid. Your taste is terrible. And this is exactly why he was about to, verse 15, spit you, this church, out of my mouth. That's a reference to another description, or that's another way of saying what Jesus often said to these churches. I will come and remove your lampstand from you. This is just a different way of saying that. But why were these believers so spiritually useless? Why were they so spiritually useless? Well, Jesus goes on to explain, verse 17. We also learn that, take a look, number two, that this church had become spiritually smug. They had become spiritually smug. And that smugness is described very vividly in verse 17. Take a look at it. For you say, Laodicean Christians, you say... I am rich, (laughs) I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing, says Jesus, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. Now, though they had awful water, the most awful water of all the cities in that region, of all the cities in that region, Laodicea was by far the wealthiest city. The city sat on a major trade route. It was famous for its black wool raised in that area. It minted its own coins. <laughs> Not a lot of cities did that. Laodicea did. Its well-to-do citizens regularly adorned the city with public works of art. These guys were loaded. Laodicea was loaded. In light of Jesus' words here, we realize this. It seems as if their economic standing and their social standing was deceiving them about their spiritual standing, about their spiritual condition. That seems to be what was happening. But of course, isn't this why the Bible so often warns us about money? Isn't it that fact? That faith in money, trust in money, or as... 1st Timothy 6 and Hebrews 13 say the love of money this distorted perspective on money doesn't it deceive us doesn't it lie to us what does it promise us what does money promise us it promises us power a certain kind of power doesn't it it promises us power to be satisfied If I have money, I can be satisfied. It promises us a power to be secure. I won't have to be scared. I won't have to be worried. I won't have to do this or that. I'll be secure if I have money. It promises us self-sufficiency. I won't need any other, but I won't need anyone else. I'll have the money to do it on my own. And not needing anyone else is safer because people let you down. You see, these, this is what it's telling us. This is, this is what the, the, the love of money wants us to believe. And we believe those lies so often because our perspective is so often limited to earthly things. We're not looking vertically. We're looking just horizontally. We see our lives in just 2D, not 3D. That's what's happening here. You see, by earthly standards, by that limited earthly horizontal perspective, if we were to look at these people in Laodicea, we would say, these people are worthy, enviable, rich, in the know, and well-dressed. And yet Jesus Christ comes along in verse 17 and says, no, these people are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. who will you believe, Jesus or the rest of us with our limited earthly perspective? That was the truth about their spiritual condition. Jesus spoke the truth about their spiritual condition. And because they lived as if they needed nothing, nothing of spiritual significance was happening in Or through them. That's pretty sobering isn't it? When you act like you need nothing. Then spiritually nothing. Is happening in or through you. Of of any significance. Because this church had become spiritually smug. They had also become spiritually useless. But there's one more thing that we need to see here. Remember what we're doing. We're just asking how does the rest of the letter this letter in verses 14 through 22 how does it help us understand verse 20 and we're laying the groundwork for that aren't we we're realizing this church had become spiritually useless this church had become spiritually smug and this brings us to verse 20 where we learn verse uh, point number three take a look this church had become spiritually quote-unquote friendless they'd become spiritually friendless in verse 18, Jesus calls this faith family to come and receive that which truly matters. The spiritual wealth, the spiritual provision that he and he alone had for them, he was calling them to come and receive it, to come and get it, to come buy it from him. I don't think that means earn it. I think that means you take this, there's proper steps to get it, though. The provision that he alone had for them, that he is offering them again as he's offered it to them in the past. But as we see here in verse 19, this will require what? Fervent repentance. Zeal and repentance put together. It's a kind of zealous repentance, a kind of fervent repentance. Now please don't miss that verse 19 also confirms for us that the hard words of Jesus in this letter the difficult words of Jesus that we've been talking about that these are in fact words of love some would hear these words and think Jesus you're being a little strident (laughs) you're being a little harsh with this church maybe you're kind of loading it on a little thick right for them but we need to understand that Jesus is being the most loving voice in their life when He speaks to them like this. This is His love calling to them. It's His love that calls to us, even when we don't hear things that we we don't want, with things we don't want to hear, things we don't like hearing from God. It's His love that speaks these words. Those verse nineteen. Those whom I love, I reprove. And discipline it reminds us of what scripture says about discipline and how it points to the fact that we are children of a father if you are disciplined by god count that a joy yes discipline is hard yes it's painful but count it all joy because it shows that you are a child of the father because a parent disciplines his or her child i hope you're not disciplining other people's kids Right? I hope you're not out there in the grocery stores. <laughs> you know what? Let me take you out of the car. You're going to get a spanking in the bathroom. You're like, where are you going with my child? Hold on a minute. What's happening here? No, 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 no. If you are disciplined, you are disciplined because you are loved by our Father who is in heaven. This is the same idea. Jesus disciplines those whom he loves as he stresses in verse 19. And it's to this audience... With this heart that we listen again to the words of verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, what is that telling us? It's telling us that he's knocking, but he's also calling out. It's me, it's Jesus. I'd like to come in. It's me, I'm here. Will you open the door? It's me, Jesus. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What a beautiful and powerful image this is. What a moving portrayal of the heart of Christ for his strange sheep, for his wayward brethren, for his Foolish servants, this is the heart of Christ. Just look at what is offered here. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. There are few images as stirring as this one in Scripture. Like a good meal with a good friend, these spiritually self-impoverished, self-impoverished believers These spiritually self impoverished believers are offered here both the richness of Christ's provision and the richness of Christ's presence. Is he stirring you even now? Is he stirring your heart? Do you see how beautiful this is? But even before the soul-stirring invitation of Revelation 3.20, there is what should have been a soul-disturbing depiction for the Laodicean church, for those who were called by His name. Jesus Christ was on the outside knocking to be let in. Christ was on the outside. Doesn't that disturb you? Doesn't that bother you? He's on the outside. That was the sad and sobering reality of their true spiritual condition if they would have the ears to hear it. Notice the word anyone in verse 20. Anyone. Notice the words him and he in verse 20. The picture is not of a crowded church meal happening inside while Jesus is on the outside. What's pictured here is each believer choosing to be spiritually alone with their truest spiritual friend on the outside, knocking in love, Waiting for repentance, which is described here or pictured here as the opening of a door. Opening the door once again to Jesus Christ. Knock, knock. Who's there? Jesus. Jesus who? Exactly. Jesus who? Brothers and sisters, these were... Believers. These were believers. Undoubtedly, as in almost every church community, there were some in Laodicea who professed Jesus but did not really belong to Jesus. We know that's quite common. Then and now. But overall, these were, verse 19, those whom I love. But this was a church that had become useless and it was a church that was now living as if spiritually friendless. Sitting alone. Inside. Why? Why? Because it was a church that had become smug. It was a group of believers where too many said, verse 17, I need nothing. I need nothing. But that's the exact opposite of saving faith, isn't it? When you say, I need nothing, it's the exact opposite of saving faith. If most of the individuals addressed here truly were Christians, then that was only possible because at some point they had embraced rather than rejected their neediness. Their desperate need for Christ, their desperate need for forgiveness, their desperate need to be reconciled and made right with God, to have peace with God, their desperate need for eternal life. You have to acknowledge that to even become a Christian. You have to acknowledge your neediness. It doesn't work any other way. In the same way, if most of the individuals that I'm addressing this morning truly are Christians, then that's only possible because you have embraced rather than rejected your neediness. But one truth clearly confirmed by our passage this morning is this that can all change. That can all change. Believer, you need to understand that. That can all change. those who once came as spiritual beggars, those who once came as those who were spiritually thirsty, as lost sheep in need of rescue, as spiritually sick and dying in need of healing, they can become smug. Smug. They can become satisfied and secure and sufficient in something other than, than the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you something you don't know. I'm just trying to put it in spiritually serious terms so that you grapple with it, that you really see it for what it is in all of its ugliness. Spiritual smugness. They can become smug. We can become smug. With all the courage and honesty honesty you can muster, please ask yourself this. Where am I this morning? Maybe even more revealing, ask yourself, where is Jesus this morning? When I look around my life, Where is Jesus? No, not on paper. I don't want to hear about on paper. In practice. In your priorities. In your pursuits. Where is Jesus? Have you become satisfied? Secure and self-sufficient because of some kind of worldly prosperity like our brothers from 2,000 years ago. Because you now find such things, satisfaction, security, and sufficiency in worldly control maybe. In reputation, maybe in some kind of success. But again, please know this. The hard words spoken by Jesus here are words of love. They are words of love to you. And the invitation in verse 20 is amazingly gracious. Do you see it? Think about it. For this church, for this, these individuals who were so swollen with pride that they exclaimed, I need nothing. For Jesus to graciously offer them everything. By offering them once again Himself. His presence. His provision. And He's offering you those same things this morning. Because He loves you. He's offering you those same things this morning. If you hear Him knocking this morning, then please be shaken and be sobered by that knock. Because it means Jesus is on the quote-unquote outside. Don't be dismissive of that shakenness. We need to be disturbed, don't we? We need to be roused. But also, when you hear that knock, be thrilled by that knock. Be thrilled by that knock. Be overjoyed by that knock. Because it means Jesus wants to come in. He's eager to come into your life. He's eager to be present with you. He's eager to walk with you. He's eager to shoulder the burdens that you're carrying. That's why He's knocking. That's why you hear His voice. He wants to come in and eat with you. Believer, Revelation 3.20 is not describing someone who has been cut off from Jesus or lost their salvation. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what this text is saying. It's describing a believer who has forgotten the nourishment of fellowship with Christ. That's what we see here. It's describing someone who is sadly and foolishly looking for satisfaction or security somewhere else. But the reassurance of the gospel, that just means good news about Jesus. That reassurance is that though you and I can often live as if spiritually friendless, we have a friend who will never forsake us. Ever. It's like when Jesus described a parable of what a friend was like. He was knocking at the door even late at night, right? (laughs) He was knocking. I need some bread. I need some bread. Because that's what friends do. They lean on each other. They depend on each other. Jesus was this friend. He's knocking at the door. He's a Lord who still walks among the lampstands. He's a shepherd who still calls out to His sheep. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He's the one who taught us this. Take a look at the screen. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? It means the spiritually needy. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Brother or sister, maybe this morning you're hearing this and you feel convicted. You feel God working. You hear that knocking. Or maybe you say, I don't feel as if Jesus is on the outside. I don't necessarily hear him knocking. Well, if that's the case, be thankful. Be thankful. Praise God. Uh, But please don't forget how this verse describes spiritual healthiness because it may be a corrective for you as well. How does it describe spiritual healthiness? It portrays the Christian life in terms of something that many might find far too mundane. The Christian life is like having a meal with Jesus. Oh, no, pastor, that's a little almost sacrilegious. Christian life's like a race. The Christian life is like a to-do list. The Christian life is like a uh, go forth and conquer. The Christian life is like a yada, 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 right? It's just uh, this is what it is. But it's not that. Well, you'll have to take that up with Jesus. I'm going to tell you what he said. Christian life is like a meal with him. It's like going out to lunch. It's like having someone over for dinner. Is that how you think about your Christian life? Is that how you experience the Christian life? The warmth, joy, nourishment, fullness, and fellowship of a meal together. How wonderful. How wonderful. Remember, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Interesting language, right? This is not simply a commoner dining with a king. This is also a king dining with a commoner. Both are true. There is a mutuality here that's absolutely stunning when you think about it. Believer, disciple, enjoy The incomparable presence and provision of Jesus in your life. Enjoy it. You may not hear knocking, but are you enjoying your meal? Are you enjoying your time with Jesus? Don't accept anything less when it comes to the Christian life, brother, sister. And coming full circle, we could ask this. So is this an evangelistic verse, Revelation 3.20? No. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't point you, whoever you are, to Christ and his incomparable goodness. It should do that for anyone. These ancient Christians were losing sight of what? They were losing sight of the fact that Jesus was their only hope. That he was the only way. The only path. So what did Jesus do about their spiritual smugness? He slapped him right upside the face. "Nah! that'll teach you in your spiritual smugness. Lay No, of course he didn't do that. <laughs> what did he do instead? He kicked down the door, right? He grabbed one of those SWAT battery rams. Crash. I heard, I heard there's a bad case of spiritual smugness here. You're under arrest. No, what did he do? He knocked at the door. In love, He knocked. He knocked. He reached out to this church. He spoke to them. He intervened to tell them the truth. He wrote this letter. He dictated this letter. And He wants to do the same thing in your life today. Intervene with the truth. Whether it's your very first time turning and trusting Him. Or it's your one millionth time turning and trusting Him. He is the only way. Amen? He is the only way. So let's do this. Let's rejoice this morning. All of us, whether you know Christ or you you don't yet know Christ but want to know Christ, let's rejoice in the amazing picture here, the depiction of Revelation 3.20. Let's rejoice in the richness of what has been And is being offered to us by the grace of God. Would you pray with me? Pray with me.